The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The civilians that Ghani had in charge of the security portfolio, people like Hamdallah Mohib, who was a national security advisor, you know, and Ghani himself had no expertise, no experience with security, the security sector or, or military operations whatsoever. And so they had no ability to provide effective civilian oversight or guidance to the security sector, to the military. And in some cases, they even went so far, and, and the report describes, for example, Mohib setting up his own command center inside of the National Security Council of Afghanistan to, to directly provide guidance on military operations. You had these situations where, where civilians that had no expertise whatsoever were trying to guide or direct security operations of the Afghan security forces. And as you might imagine, they were terrible at it. I'm Bryce Clem, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, Monday, May 23rd, 2022. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, known by its initials as SIGAR, released an interim report last week on the reasons for the collapse of the Afghan army. To break down the report's findings, I spoke with Dr. Jonathan Schroden, the Research Program Director at the Center for Naval Analyses. Dr. Schroden is a longtime analyst of the Afghan military and has deployed or traveled to Afghanistan 13 times since 2003. He is quoted and cited several times in the latest report. We spoke about a range of topics covered in the report, including the U.S.'s efforts to build an Afghan army, the Afghan government's decisions that contributed to the collapse, and the Taliban's highly effective military campaign. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Monday, May 23rd, the collapse of the Afghan security forces. Before we get into the report, I was wondering if we could talk about SIGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction itself as an institution and how its mandate really affects its work product. So Jonathan, you're an expert. You were even interviewed in this latest report. What is SIGAR for people who might not be familiar with the space? Yeah, so the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, was created at some point early, relatively early on in the U.S. war in Afghanistan to act as an oversight mechanism for the amount of money that the U.S. was spending on reconstruction activities in Afghanistan. It was patterned after a similar special inspector general that was established for the war in Iraq 
which was known as SIGIR, uh, with you know Iraq replacing Afghanistan in the acronym. And it performed a similar function there, which is to say, given the billions, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that the U.S. was spending on reconstruction activities in Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. government, Congress most notably, recognized that that amount of money brings with it the opportunity for, uh, for you know, people to steal that money for, for fraud. And so part of the reason you establish an inspector general is to do things like conduct audits to, you know, identify fraudulent activities, to investigate them, to take those fraudulent activities, you know, to the Justice Department or other uh, means of legal prosecution of actors who have engaged in such illegal behavior. Um, So that's primarily the function of the the Inspector General. Um, There is, though, as part of CIGAR, a lessons learned program, which was also established by Congress. And uh, Congress occasionally directs CIGAR to engage in lessons learned studies on specific topics. And so my understanding is that the report that we're discussing today came from a directive from the U.S. Congress for CIGAR to examine the reasons behind the collapse of Afghanistan's security forces. So the report is broken down into three sections as far as I could tell, the first is the immediate factors that contributed to the collapse of Afghan security forces in August 2021. Then the second section or sort of takes the longer view and tries to go back over over 20 years and, and figure out sort of what went wrong over the course of building the Afghan military. And then the, the last section tries to account for U.S. equipment and U.S. trained personnel. I want to jump right into the report and uh, one of its key findings that you sort of disagree with the framing of, which is that the single most important factor in the collapse in August 2021 was the U.S. decision to withdraw military forces and contractors from Afghanistan. Why do you disagree with the framing of that being the single most important factor? Yeah, it's it, it was called out in the report as you described. And in discussions with some of the people who were involved in the report uh, after its release, the way they the way they described it to me was they called out that factor specifically because they really felt that it was the uh, action that cemented or locked in the failure of the Afghan security forces and and I don't necessarily agree with that framing in so much as if you look at the six factors that they call out uh, which includes right the US decision to withdraw but it also includes changes in the U.S. military's support to the Afghan security forces in the wake of the U.S.-Taliban agreement, Um, the fact that the U.S. never developed the Afghan security forces to be self-sustaining, a bunch of really bad decisions that were made by Afghan President Ashraf Ghani along the way, you know, the lack of the Afghan government to create a security plan for the the post-U.S. withdrawal environment, and the fact that the Taliban waged what I would call a brilliant military campaign uh, in the wake, you know, sort of in the wake of the U.S.-Taliban agreement signing. When I look at the totality of those six factors, I find it really, really difficult to disentangle them in a way that would allow one to analytically justify saying any one of those six factors was the single most important factor. To me, it's more like a perfect storm in which you needed all of these factors to come together as they did in order to 
to sort of generate the spectacular collapse of the Afghanistan security forces that we witnessed. Aside from the the decision to withdraw, which was the first of the six factors, let's start jumping in. The second factor that you just mentioned was the the decrease in, in U.S. airstrikes after the U.S.-Taliban agreement. Why were the Afghan security forces, and you can sort of take this answer to be over 20 years of building the war or or immediately, you know, why were Afghan security forces so dependent on U.S. airstrikes? So a couple of reasons. One is the the U.S. had inured them to being that dependent on U.S. airstrikes, in part because that's the way the U.S. Army and the U.S. military fought in Afghanistan. Our own military was heavily reliant on, you know, intelligence support from above. So think cameras on drones and cameras on planes to provide overhead imagery to them, as well as um, support from uh, aircraft in the form of, of you know, bombs and, and other lethal strikes being conducted from the air. So our own forces relied very heavily on those technologies and that kind of air support. And we trained the Afghan security forces to operate much in the same way that we did, which is to say we transferred to them that type of dependency on overhead imagery, overhead video, and airstrikes. Um, so, so we effectively trained them to operate in that way. When the U.S. was in Afghanistan in large numbers, so we had you know lots of forces on the ground, tens of thousands of forces there, uh, we had significant air capabilities in Afghanistan to support those forces. And here I'm talking about you know the pre-2015 timeframe. When President Obama ordered the end of the surge and the and the full transition of the mission to the Afghan security forces in 2015, we withdrew large amounts of that air power. At the same time, we attempted to, or we did, build up the capabilities of the Afghan Air Force, but we but the Afghan Air Force was never going to be as capable or have the same amount of capacity for air support than what the U.S. provided, you know, pre-2015. So in that 2015 timeframe, there was already a large reduction in air support to the Afghan security forces. As time went on, 2015 to 2021, what you saw is the Taliban increasingly took control of territory on the ground and was increasingly able to sever the roads that connected um, various cities and, and small towns across Afghanistan, which made the Afghan security forces even more reliant on air power for things like logistics and for, you know, support to those forces that would become engaged with the Taliban. So it was a combination of us teaching them to fight that way, us, uh, you know, taking away a lot of the capacity that we had provided over time and the Afghan security forces increasingly finding themselves isolated on the ground and reliant on air power to resupply and and protect them or, or come to reinforce them when they were attacked by the Taliban. And the report in, in, one, in one section talks about how the post-Cold War U.S. military was really built on that model of being lighter but heavily dependent on logistics. Is that sort of how the U.S. approached building the Afghan National Army from the beginning? Well, the, the approach to building the army itself changed numerous times over the course of the 20 years. But by the end, you know, for the last probably seven to eight years at least, uh, yes. I mean, we, we built the Afghan army initially to be a light 
army, right? Very mobile. We gave them things like pickup trucks as their means of getting around. Over time, they became heavier and heavier as we provided them up armored Humvees and you know, mine resistant ambush protectant vehicles, so-called MRAPs. Um, so they became heavier and heavier over time. They also were very, very spread out all over the country in thousands of checkpoints, uh, many of which were not set up uh, in very well-protected areas or in very well-protected ways. And they had sort of a centralized logistics system whereby you know, there were a series of, of regional logistics hubs that existed alongside each of the, the Afghan National Army Corps. And those logistics were supposed to flow from the center out uh, to the periphery, to all these, you know, thousands of, of individual checkpoints and locations that the, that the army had. The problem, though, was the logistics system that we established was designed like the U.S. Army's logistics system, which is to say it's a pull logistics system where units on the ground file electronic reports uh, for the things they need. And those reports go up to the you know regional supply depots and, and then tailored packages of logistics are supposed to flow from those depots to the units on the ground. The trouble with that approach is it's entirely computer-based and, and requires accurate you know, filing of reports from lower levels all the way up to, to upper echelons. And that's that the Afghans simply couldn't use that system. You know, a combination of illiteracy, shortages in internet and computer connectivity, you know, and corruption, frankly, in the system rendered that type of logistics system effectively unusable by the Afghan security forces without massive amounts of U.S. contractor and U.S. military support. And it's my understanding from the report that that was particularly acute with the Afghan Air Force. They sort of, the report draws a, a sort of chain between the Afghan Air Force being dependent on U.S. supply chains and logistics, and then they, in turn, the Afghan National Army and police were already dependent on the Afghan Air Force for supplies, logistics, and also air support during it. Is that is that correct, sort of that chain of logic? Yeah. I mean, as I said earlier, over time, the, the army and the police became increasingly reliant on air power for both resupply and for airstrike support. That put a heavy strain on the Afghan Air Force to deliver that support. And the U.S. had, over time, built the capacity of the Afghan Air Force, right, added hundreds of airframes to it. But we did so in a way that continually made it you know, less sustainable over time. So early on, when they first stood up the Afghan Air Force, they gave it just a few different types of airframes. And the helicopters, most notably, that were given were Russian-made Mi-17 helicopters that had been specifically designed by the Soviets for the Afghan environment when the Soviets were in Afghanistan. And so it was tailor-made for the Afghan environment. It's an easy aircraft to fly. It's relatively easy to maintain. Uh, and so we we gave the Afghans a lot of those aircraft, and we began a systematic program to train them to both fly and maintain those aircraft. And we made a lot of progress on that particular airframe. I mean, by the time we left, something like 90% or better of the maintenance on MI-17 helicopters was being performed by Afghans. But that's a singular story. For the other eight or nine types of airframes that we provided the Afghans, 
and here I'm talking, you know, most notably, uh, highly, really sophisticated platforms that the U.S. gave them, like Blackhawks and like the C-130 transport planes that we gave them. They had almost no ability to organically maintain or sustain those aircraft. They, they were re reliant almost 100% on contract maintenance support from the U.S., and when the U.S. withdrew, withdrew it took you know it, it it took out its security presence, and the contractors left with it. Um, right, the contractors are not going to stay in a place like Afghanistan that is very dangerous and very unstable if the U.S. military is not there to protect them. And when those contractors left, the Afghans simply could not maintain the bulk of their aircraft, and you see that in the report. Um, I think there's a quote from General Sami Sadat who says something like 60% of the Afghan helicopters became inoperable within a matter of weeks after those contractors left. And uh, I mean, this was really out in the open for, for a long time, that dependency on U.S. contractors. I think I remember reading a year ago, I can't remember if it was a CIGAR report or a DOD inspector general report that said that the 90% of the Afghan Air Force was dependent on U.S. contractors. So people knew about this for, for quite a long time. Is there anything that the U.S. tried to do to sort of account for that as it withdrew? Not that I've been able to discern. And you're correct. I mean, this was a known problem. I mean, you know, we, we, I called this out uh, in numerous reports over the years, you know, as, as late as January of 2021, I wrote a paper for the the Combating Terrorism Center's uh, Sentinel Journal, in which I in which I said, if the U.S. withdraws these these capabilities, you will see a rapid downward spiral in the capability of the Afghan Air Force. Seagar um, called that out as well, uh, as blatantly as I did, and I believe there were even quotes from the commander of, of U.S. Central Command, General McKenzie, um, as the U.S. was contemplating withdrawal effectively saying that he was greatly concerned about the ability of the Afghan Air Force to persist after the U.S. left. So, yes, the, this, these were known problems um, that had been called out blatantly, you know, for, for a year or more in advance of the U.S. withdrawal. And as best I can tell, very little was done by the U.S. to mitigate these concerns about the ability of the Afghan Air Force to persist after we left. Before we get into the Afghan government's role in the collapse and the Taliban's role, I want to hone in on a few more things that the report identifies on the U.S. side, one of, one of which was when the U.S. had a massive presence in Afghanistan, when I'm talking about the surge, like you identified earlier, the pre-2015 years, the report says that the competing U.S. goals of improving security in Afghanistan, but also trying to make the Afghan security forces self-sustaining, was just was just too difficult to balance. And I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through how that would play out on sort of a, a mission to mission basis and, and what that would look like. So what you described, I think, is the single fundamental tension that existed throughout the U.S.'s attempts to develop the Afghan security forces. Right. You have to you have to think of a balance on one hand between taking a long view of developing a partner security force in which you recognize that, look, we're starting from a position of human capital in which the vast majority of recruits that you're going to get for the Afghan army, for example, are illiterate, innumerate, 
come from you know rural agrarian backgrounds with very little exposure to, to technology and very little exposure to formal uh, military training way of life etc that's where that's the place that you're starting from in or that we were starting from in Afghanistan if you take that recognition and then think about how long will it take you to build a professional army of 200,000 odd individuals you know the answer is a long time probably a generation or more you know 20 years or better the us never took that kind of view of the timeline that it would require to develop a professional sustainable army in afghanistan instead the imperative was always to you know get after the enemy or tran- and or transition the mission to the Afghans as quickly as you can so that we, we, the U.S., can get out of Afghanistan. There was never an intention to stay for 20 years or longer. The intention was always to stand up an army, give them a bunch of stuff, and transition the mission to them as quickly as we possibly could. So you have this trade-off between, you know, taking a strategic view of what it would of what it would require to develop a sustainable army, which is to say it will take a long time. It will be very hard. It will take a lot of effort uh, to get there. And the flip side of that, which is, well, we we just want to fight the Taliban and degrade the Taliban as quickly as we can so that we can leave. So let's do things that are easy. Uh, Let's, you know, let's give them a bunch of stuff. Let's, Let's throw a bunch of soldiers out in the field Uh, If those soldiers aren't going to go fight the Taliban, then let's fight the Taliban ourselves and drag those soldiers along with us in what we'll call partnered operations, but are really us doing things for them with a thin veneer of an Afghan army, you know, contingent on it. And we consistently chose the easy get after the enemy and try to transition the mission quickly approach, as opposed to the hey, this is going to take a long time and be really hard. So let's take it in incremental steps and and consistently put the Afghans in the lead and force them to take ownership, to learn from their mistakes and to and to develop from those over time. You know, again, we, we consistently prioritize the short and the easy over the long term and hard. And, and that's why we never got to a point where the Afghan army or the Air Force, et cetera, were ever self-sustaining. I want to also ask about U.S. advisors. Um, one thing that I was somewhat surprised to see in the report, and maybe maybe you weren't, was a criticism of the fact that U.S. advisors really didn't have any institutional memory and, and had high levels of turnover and really short-term rotations in the country. So, you know, how, how did this result in a failure, as the report notes, a failure to develop a, a cadre of advisors with regional and functional expertise? Yeah, so there, there's a sharp dichotomy that exists within the case of the Afghan security forces themselves writ large. And that dichotomy exists between the Afghan Air Force and the Afghan commandos and the Afghan army and, and police, the conventional parts of the force. If you look at the Air Force and the commandos, we actually, the U.S. and its partners, developed significant capability in those forces. I mean, we we built an Afghan Air Force from scratch uh, and one that eventually had several hundred airframes. And while they couldn't maintain the vast majority of those airframes, they could fly them. 
and do some pretty effective air to ground targeting and intelligence collection activities, et cetera. So operationally, the Afghan Air Force was actually quite good by the time we left. Similarly with the commandos, they were recognized as being one of the best special operations units in all of South Asia by the time we left. So there was significant capability that we built in those units in stark contrast to the conventional army, uh, which was was largely inept, uh, and the police force that we built, which was a complete disaster. So, you know, you asked the question, why? Why was there such a stark discrepancy between those examples? And and I've you know I've studied that, and this there are there are a host of factors you could point to. But in this case, I would say there is a sort of single most important factor that I've identified. And it's not just peculiar to the Afghan case. If you look at Iraq, Somalia, um, some other examples, you find the same thing, which is for the Afghan Air Force and the commandos, what the U.S. did was establish persistent partnering relationships between those units and specific U.S. military units. So for the commandos, for example, you had the same U.S. special operations unit partnered with them year after year after year which meant you know, many of the same U.S. Uh, special operators were, were doing repeat deployments to advise that unit over the course of years. So they developed personal relationships that persisted. They were able to pass that knowledge to other members of their unit who were then going to deploy. And you can really build on those relationships and that type of capability over time, which is what we saw. If you look at the way we approached the Afghan army, though, it was completely ad hoc. You know, most advisors who went had never served an advisory tour before and were never going to serve an advisory tour again. Even in the rare cases where you had someone coming back on a second deployment as an advisor, rarely if ever were they sent to advise the same unit they had advised previously. Most of the time they were just sent to wherever the the next opening was could be in a completely different part of the country with a completely different Afghan army unit. And so you never had any consistency in personal relationships and unit relationships in, in sort of built, you know, setting a foundation and building on it. And that was the same at the sort of institutional levels of Afghan army development as well. So the, the entity in Kabul that was responsible for that was called the combined security transition Command Afghanistan, or C-STICA, it was the acronym. And, and for years, I would travel to Afghanistan at least once or twice a year, and I would always meet with C-STICA personnel when I traveled there. And it was amazing the the rate of turnover and the lack of institutional knowledge that existed at that command. I mean, I would go one year and ask them, you know, so what are the top priority items for you all? What, you know, what are you working on for the Afghan security forces that are most important right now? And, you know, and I would come back a year later and say, hey, the last time I was here, you know, this command articulated X and Y and Z as the, as the top three things that you're working on. Where do you stand on those things now? And often they would look at me and have no idea what I was talking about. There was literally that absence of institutional knowledge from year to year to year, just no consistency of priorities, of understanding of of knowledge over time. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to move to the decisions that the Afghan government and specifically Ashraf Ghani made uh, that the report identifies as really undercutting the Afghan security forces the report says that you know he he frequently changed leaders and made a ton of other bad decisions but i want to sort of ask you about the structure of the afghan government and how it became sort of so dependent on ashraf ghani the person and his personal approach to to management yeah so i'll i'll admit up front that the the finer points of Afghan politics and, and internal workings of the palace are, are not my area of expertise. So there are people who could, you know, elucidate that far better than I can. I'll, I'll comment on a few trends that that I observed largely by, you know, reading the works of others who are smarter on this than, than I am. So one of those is Ashraf Ghani, when he came into office as president, had an you know, an anti-corruption agenda in mind, right? He was someone who had literally written a book about state building and, and how to do that and, you know, how to approach it. And, and a big part of that was was anti-corruption. And so early on, he, he did a bunch of things to try and marginalize or sideline or remove from, you know, seats of government power, various warlords and, you know, ethnic strongmen that had existed in the Hamid Karzai era and, and even before as being highly influential members of the Afghan elite in an attempt to try to professionalize the, the government and remove these, you know, sort of old agents of, of corruption and extra government influence. And, and he had some success in doing that in some cases and less success in others. But when he was successful in, in sidelining some of these individuals or, or getting them out of positions in power, he often replaced them with very young, you know, technocrats who had been educated in the West and who, you know, ostensibly had the best of intentions, I think, for Afghanistan in mind, right? They, they were people who had been educated at, at Oxford and, you know, Ivy League schools who had degrees in technical disciplines like finance, accounting, you know, civil engineering, et cetera, people that that had real talent and education that that could help the Afghan government. And so to Ghani's credit, he tried to bring in a lot of these types of people to provide more competence to the government. But in so doing, he ran into a couple of challenges. One is right, he created this disaffected class 
of Afghan warlords and ethnic strongmen who still had a lot of power, but now had that power outside of the government, right? Which creates a lot of obvious challenges. In addition to that, a lot of the people that he brought in, these sort of young technocrats, had no experience with the security sector at all. And so while the U.S. had invested a lot of energy in training, you know, generals, you know, military experts through the ranks of, of the Afghan commandos, most notably, and there were this, these you know, generals that had come up through those ranks who, who were very capable and knew a lot about the security sector, the civilians that Ghani had in charge of the security portfolio, people like Hamdallah Mohib, who was a national security advisor, you know, and Ghani himself had no expertise, no experience with security, the security sector or, or military operations whatsoever. And so they had no ability to provide effective civilian oversight or guidance to the security sector, to the military. And in some cases, they even went so far, and, and the report describes, for example, Mohib setting up his own command center inside of the National Security Council of Afghanistan to, to directly provide guidance on military operations. You had these situations where, where civilians that had no expertise whatsoever were trying to guide or direct security operations of the Afghan security forces. And as you might imagine, they were terrible at it. I mean, the, the guidance that they gave was, was uniformly not helpful. Another factor that the report identifies in its six key findings is that the Afghanistan government never created a security plan for a post-U.S. withdrawal environment. That seems really strange to read, especially after April 2021, when President Biden said pretty much we're leaving no matter what. What assumptions do you think the the Afghan government operated under that that made them never create a, a security plan? Yeah, so the critical assumption was that they never believed that Biden would actually decide to leave. I think all the way up until Biden's announcement of that decision, the Afghan government and its leaders, like President Ghani, firmly believed that the U.S. was in Afghanistan to stay, that Biden would come out and announce that, nope, we're not leaving, despite what the U.S. Taliban agreement said, uh, we're not leaving. We're you know we're going to stay in Afghanistan because they believed it was in the U.S. interest to do so. Um, they, in some ways, came to view themselves as an indispensable partner for the U.S. in the United States counterterrorism, you know, the global war on terror, um, and, and and so those were you know very faulty assumptions on their part. And the report talks about you know some of the inputs that went into that. I, I think one of the things that it calls out is. Uh, President Ghani's relationship with a lot of different members of the U.S. Congress and him hearing mixed messages from them as to what the administration's decision might ultimately be. I, I will say, though, in you know, somewhat in defense of, of President Ghani and his advisors in their assumption that the U.S. wouldn't leave, uh, there, there were other reasons for them to believe that. So prior to Biden coming to office as the U.S. president, you know, if you looked at what candidate Biden said about his position on Afghanistan, the clearest articulation of that was in, I think it was March of 2020, in which he was interviewed, I believe it was by Foreign Affairs. And he said his position on Afghanistan was to, to effectively leave a small special operations presence 
in Afghanistan for as long as was necessary to continue to fight the likes of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And so he hinted at a willingness to stay involved in Afghanistan militarily, you know, over the longer term. Uh, And in addition to that, there was an independent effort that occurred in the year before uh, Biden taking office, which was the Afghanistan Study Group. It was a congressionally mandated independent review that was led by the U.S. Institute for Peace. Uh, And in full disclosure, I was a senior advisor to that effort. But the conclusions of that report, which was, you know, signed off on by a, a blue ribbon panel to include former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, General Joseph Dunford, uh, was, you know, the recommendation of the Afghan study group was that the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan as well. And and that was viewed, I think, by Afghan political leaders as a pretty influential report based on the names that were associated uh, with the, you know, the Blue Ribbon panel that signed off on it. So they had a lot of reasons, good reasons to believe that Biden might decide to stay. And they acted on that on that belief, on that assumption, all the way up until the point when Biden said, no, we're getting out. And at that point, it was really too late for the Afghan government to sit down and devise a strategic plan because the U.S. then withdrew so precipitously um, that, you know, any planning effort would take a matter of, of weeks, if not a month, to come up with a, a really viable and detailed strategic plan. And they just didn't have that much time left. I want to move to the the Taliban's campaign through during sort of all of this and in, in the past year. You've written a lot about what the Taliban did effectively. One, there's there's so many things we could get into, but one of them is sort of disinformation and psychological operations. How did the Taliban effectively use those on the battlefield? Yeah, it's a really I think underlooked part of their campaign, in part because it's it's very hard to. It's harder to document things like information operations than it is kinetic attacks on the battlefield. They're they're in a lot of ways less visible, harder to track, etc. But it's clear it, it was it was clear at the time, you know, during the the Taliban's campaign, that they were engaged in a lot of this. There was an overt component to it that was very obvious at the time. Them putting videos of captured Afghan army bases and soldiers online, um, them putting videos of themselves driving around in Afghan army Humvees and, you know, with large caches of captured weapons from the Afghan army, et cetera, right? These, these sort of like displays of strength and, you know, messages that, hey, it, it's only a matter of time before we take over the country. So if you're in the Afghan army, you should surrender now. And we'll give you a good deal, right? They, they put out videos of them giving money to captured Afghan soldiers and sending them on their way saying, hey, you know, we, we haven't harmed these individuals. In fact, we've even given them enough money to get back to the villages that they came from. And, and we will grant them amnesty uh, in the wake of them getting back to their home village. So these types of messages were, were clear and obvious online as the Taliban military campaign was unfolding. And they had, you know, some pretty good effects that we could discern both in real time, but but more in in hindsight as well. The the perhaps more insidious part of their information campaign, which has become increasingly visible only in hindsight, was them going to local village elders, 
and even to the local leaders of of Afghan army uh, units, you know, at sort of the the junior officer level, and doing much this and and sort of offering them deals, and saying, you know, hey, it it's inevitable, right? The U.S. is leaving. You see what's happening. You know how strong we are. We're gonna win. It's only a matter of time. And we'll give you a good deal now if you throw in with us. And the deal is going to get worse over time. And it will eventually result in us just killing you. So take the deal now and and switch sides or at least get out of the way. And, and it's clear that a lot of local you know, village elders and even local leaders of, of the Afghan army took those deals in in real time. And it was difficult to sense that on the scale that it occurred as the Taliban military campaign was unfolding. Uh, But it's clear in hindsight that that played a huge role in the Taliban military victory, as well as the collapse of the Afghan security forces. And that it was, I would say it was arguably the most effective part of their combined political military campaign in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal. But it was something that was very, very difficult to sense on the scale at which it happened, you know, in real time. One other factor that the report identifies that made the Taliban's campaign so effective, and maybe it didn't play as large of a role, but it's something I found interesting and wanted to ask you about, which is the the Taliban using loopholes in their agreement within the U.S. Taliban agreement to sort of take advantage of the U.S.'s rules of engagement when it came to airstrikes. I'm curious if, if you could speak on that. Yeah, this was a fascinating new detail in this Seagar report. And and there are there are a number to the credit of the Seagar team, there are a number of new really fascinating and revealing details that they identified on a number of different topics. This is one of them. So, they articulate in the report in some detail how the Taliban operated after the US Taliban agreement was signed and the US agreed to you know make some changes in its operational uh, tactics or its rule of en- rules of engagement. And so while those were never never made public at the time, what the report describes is a situation where the US effectively agreed to only provide air support in situations in which the the Afghan security forces were directly attacked by Taliban forces and and in situations where they could verify that the Afghan security forces were in contact with Taliban forces. That was effectively the agreement that that it looks like was made. So the Taliban exploited that change whereby they would do things like launch an attack against an Afghan army position. As soon as they heard aircraft coming, they would break off from the attack and effectively wait for those aircraft to finish circling overhead and eventually depart because they were low on fuel uh, or there was you know, an attack elsewhere that they had to respond to. Uh, and then they would re-engage the Afghan security force position uh, when those aircraft had departed. So that was one way that they exploited it. Another way was that they set up multiple waves of fighters. So the first wave of fighters might engage with the Afghan army position. And when aircraft showed up, right, they, they may stay engaged to continue, you know, pressing what, what advantage they might have. And they might take some losses um, from the, you know, whatever airstrikes accrued. 
But again, after the aircraft would depart, because for, you know maybe they had dropped all their bombs, they ran out of gas, etc., then a second wave would you know that had staged further off, but that couldn't be targeted by the U.S. because it wasn't actively engaged with the Afghan army position. The second wave would then advance and reinforce the first wave in continuing the attack. And sometimes there was even a third wave that was stationed further off. And, and right, and the, and the end result of that is they're still able to overrun the Afghan army position, even if U.S. air support had been provided along the way, because they understood what the U.S. rules of engagement were, and they were able to effectively exploit them. I'm curious if, if there's anything else that surprised you or any new details that you found really fascinating in the report. The other, I guess the other set of details that I found to be, you know, really interesting that, that solidified what I had heard anecdotally prior to the, you know, all of this occurring, but, but didn't really have, you know, much in the way of empirical evidence of was just how isolated Ashraf Ghani had become in the palace as the U.S. was withdrawing. And the, the report includes a lot of quotes from Afghan generals and former ministers who speak in detail to the fact that by the end, you know, the, there were effectively three people who were wielding any power at the national government level in Kabul. It was President Ghani, uh, one of his advisors, uh, and, and, the NS, and the national security advisor, Hamdullah Mohib. And those three individuals were largely in charge of the of the entire political apparatus of the country. And you can just imagine how hard it would be for three individuals to run an entire campaign to try and protect their country from the onslaught that the Taliban engaged in as the U.S. was withdrawing. I mean, it, it, it seems an impossible task, and indeed it was. So I want to talk for a minute about the role of analysts in this. You have been very intellectually honest in sort of in, in explaining sort of some some false assumptions that you might have operated under. I'm curious, sort of separate from this report, what will the collapse of of the Afghan army change for military analysts going forward? Are there any new factors that you think analysts will be considering as they move forward? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and and it's pertinent not only for this case, but for the, for other cases that the U.S. is concurrently involved in. So, if you happen to see the testimony of Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, who's the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, a couple of weeks ago, he was absolutely grilled by Senator King on what King described as the abject failures of the U.S. intelligence community when it came to assessing the capabilities of foreign military forces. And Senator King, you know, highlighted the, the case of the Afghan security forces, but he also highlighted, and, and, you know, the Iraqi security forces before that, when ISIS stormed across northern Iraq and much of the Afghan army collapsed in, in, in the face of that onslaught. And he also cited the case of Ukraine where the U.S. intelligence community had assessed that Russia would effectively capture Kyiv in a matter of days, if not weeks. And, and so there's been a lot of discussion since that exchange about, you know, did the intel community get this right? Did it get it wrong? 
I don't think it's quite as black or white as that. I mean, one, the Intel community is, you know, 18 or 19 different agencies. They don't always speak with a single voice. There are dissenting views, you know, across those agencies, some of which had it closer to what actually happened in some of these cases than than is sort of popularly believed. And in addition to that, you know, there's just a lot of variation that occurs across these cases. But one of the major criticisms is, you know, things like will to fight. And, and it's really difficult to assess the will to fight of a foreign military force, um, especially in a case like Ukraine, where they, where they weren't necessarily actively engaged before Russia invaded, with the exception of, of what was happening in the far east of the country. But, you know, will to fight type issues are, are notoriously hard to, to, to assess and, and get after. So, what, you know, to your point about intellectual honesty and sort of reengaging your own assumptions. In January of 2021, the, I published the, a paper that I mentioned earlier in the Sentinel in which I was asked to assess the relative military capability of the Taliban and the Afghan security forces in the absence of a U.S. presence. So the, th- the thesis was at that time, if the U.S. were to withdraw, uh, which of the two sides, the Taliban or Afghan security forces, would have the military advantage? And to do that analysis, I looked at five different factors, four of which were material in nature. So, you know, amount of stuff, amount of money, amount of people, that kind of thing. And I and I added a fifth factor, which was an intangible, uh, which was cohesion. Which side was more cohesive? And at the time, you know, I added that intangible factor to try and get past the, well, these other things are easy to count, right? Intangibles are, you can't really count them. They're harder to assess, but they're important. And so I wanted to to try and include some amount of that. So I added cohesion. And the net result of my analysis in that paper was that after the U.S. left, the Taliban would have a slight military advantage, against the Afghan security forces. And at the time, I took a lot of heat for that conclusion. There were many, many people who who disagreed with that conclusion or disliked it. Um, Obviously, in hindsight, though, the Taliban had not only a slight military advantage against the Afghan security forces, they had a major military advantage against them. And when I look back at that paper and asked, you know, yeah, I was close to being right, but I don't consider myself having gotten it totally right, why didn't I conclude that the, the Taliban would have a major military advantage? And my, my you know, hindsight conclusion is that I missed two additional intangible factors that were critical. One was morale and the other was information operations that we talked about earlier. Had I added those two intangible factors for which the Taliban you know, had significant advantages, over the Afghan security forces and government, I would have concluded that the Taliban would have a major military advantage in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal, which was actually what happened. So that, that's a long-winded way of, of saying, I, I think the, the answer to your question is we need to spend a lot more time, energy, and, and you know manpower, et cetera, figuring out and actually assessing those intangible factors like cohesion, morale, information mm-hmm. operations, right? These are critically important aspects of how an army fights and can fight that we don't typically give as much weight to things like how much stuff do they have, how much people do they have, and what, are, what what's their level of resourcing and training. So this report is an interim report, and Cigar will will Cigar will come out with a with a full report 
in, I think it said fall, this, this coming fall, you know, why do, why do these reports matter? Well, I think they're, they matter from a couple of different uh, standpoints. I mean, one is there, there's an important aspect of accountability that these reports, I think, at least have the potential to help generate. And, and here I mean, not necessarily personal accountability, right? Public shaming of, of people and, and dragging officials through the mud. I, I don't necessarily think that's helpful nor the intent of these types of works. But there needs to be accountability for decisions that were made that led to things like the collapse of the Afghan security forces. And we need to understand why those decisions were made the way that they were and what processes and information and you know institutional biases and preferences led to decisions that ultimately proved to be you know unhelpful at best and disastrous at worst. We, we need to understand what led to those decisions so that we can make changes to processes, you know, bureaucracies, et cetera, so that we don't generate those same types of decisions uh, institutionally in the future. So I think that's one big part of this is trying to figure out what changes do we need to make to the U.S. government to avoid a repeat of these same outcomes that, frankly, we've seen before in Iraq, in Vietnam, et cetera. So that's one. The other, though, I would say is there is a there is a healing aspect to this, too, whether for the national psyche, if you will, for, you know, we, I mean, we lost a war in Afghanistan that we fought for 20 years and we shouldn't overlook the damage that that can cause to both the national psyche you know, of the United States, but I think more acutely even to the veteran population and 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 I guess also you know some who are still active actively serving that that loss has has damaged them as well has caused you know stress mental anguish etc and and if we just walk past what happened in Afghanistan and don't study it and don't try to understand it and don't try to learn from it to those people who sacrificed it feels like their sacrifices were for naught and so. You know, part of this this retrospective, part of this looking back and trying to learn from it is honoring the sacrifices that those people made and trying to do better next time so that those sacrifices don't have to be made by other people under similar circumstances in the future. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.